I'm here with my dear friend Aisha Berenblatt, who has lived many lives in the apparel industry and most recently led an impactful campaign called Pay Up. Aisha, welcome and thank you for being here. I'd love for you to start with Pay Up. What is it and why is it so important? Hi, Christian. I'm so delighted to be here and to have this conversation. In terms of Pay Up, as you know, Remake is an advocacy organization focused on making fashion a force for good. And one of the core tenets of our work is really to push for transparency and accountability when it comes to this $2.4 trillion industry that is mostly deregulated. And so at the start of COVID, you know, we have a network of supplier partners, so factories, as well as worker organizations that started to report that brands were en masse canceling orders. For people listening in who don't know how the fashion industry operates, it mostly operates on debt, right? So factories take on the fabric liability, they put in the wages, and then once a product is shipped, it can take 60, 90, 120 days to get paid. Starting in March, we were sheltering in place. There was a lot of sluggish e-commerce sales. Everyone was in sweatpants. No one was buying anything. And so fashion brands decided, well, how could we assure supply chain savings? And they did that by essentially saying the goods we've ordered, we don't want them. And, you know, if you think about the people who make our clothes, who already live paycheck to paycheck, the idea of putting untold hundreds of thousands of hours to make product and then go into factories where either your pay is getting docked or it's being reduced or you are simply being told that you are furloughed because there's no money is really a humanitarian crisis. And so we at Remake decided no better place for us to focus our energies than around the pay up campaign. And in the early days when, you know, our very small team of six was holding handmade signs of getting brands to please pay up across our Zoom screens, we had no idea that the campaign would go viral. In a nutshell, pay up is about good business practices, not charity. The fashion industry canceled upwards of $40 billion in goods um, that were either fully produced or in production at the start of the pandemic. And through relentless campaigning, working across union groups, labor organizer groups, other campaigner groups, we have at this point recouped $22 billion of that $40 billion. So PayUp is really an example of worker and citizen solidarity to do what's right. I want to dive into that because we saw brands that were consumer-facing struggling. You saw the retail bankruptcies. You saw brands' numbers falling off a cliff. But what you didn't see was what you just mentioned, the downstream effects of that. And garment workers, by and large, have remained invisible to the consumer. And they didn't think perhaps what those implications would be. But $40 billion is a tremendous amount of money. So that's money to factories for orders that have already been completed, potentially already shipped. I think there's already some tension between factory owners wanting to do well by their workers, factory owners wanting to do well for themselves, and factory owners being squeezed by brands. They'd either paid wages or committed to pay them, and they didn't have the money to do it. What was the response from the manufacturing side of the industry to this campaign? Did they participate? How did that look? 
Yeah, you know, to your first question around how is it that the makers of our clothes remain wholly invisible, it's really why I formed Remake. I've had the privilege to get to know the amazing, fierce feminists at the other end. You know, I say feminists because it's a predominantly women of color population that's often forgotten. And it was striking to see, even when it comes to media reporting, how we were hearing of bankruptcies, you know, perhaps the inability for big retailers to pay for their leases and retail operations, you know, what does this mean for shareholders? But there was very little in terms of, well, the workers were reporting hunger and, you know, state-sponsored violence against against them as they were simply outside protesting for money that was legally owed to them. And meanwhile, as earnings reports started to come in, you see that shareholders did just great. And even brands filing for bankruptcy were essentially making sure that their executives were paid before their suppliers and forget about workers. And so I think the inequity that we are tending to see with the supercharged capitalism unchecked, unregulated, really made people angry in the global South, but in the West as well. And I think that was part of the secret sauce of what made PayUp so successful. We had warehouse workers and retailers from places like Urban Outfitters saying, yes, it's a terrible place for us to work with. And now we're really angry and because they continue not to pay up. What was interesting for us is we tend to mostly work with worker organizations, you know, labor organizations, union organizations. But this was the first time that suppliers were really on our side as well. What this pandemic and brand behavior really showed was the power asymmetry and the sort of dynamics of power between brands and suppliers. This is a largely illiquid industry. A lot of suppliers were out the fabric liability. They had to make payroll. Places like Bangladesh Eid bonuses had to be paid. And suddenly they're, you know, begging six, seven, nine months even into the pandemic to say, can you please just pay for the purchase orders in place? And so I think COVID in many ways has cracked wide open the inequities and injustice and in some ways the racism that's embedded in the fashion system. This was one of the largest transfers of wealth from the global south to the western world. You look at some of the largest western brands in Europe or the US and they did all right financially. Some of them even in the pandemic made a profit. But I think what people need to understand is it was done on the backs of the people who brought their product to life. What are the continued consequences of that? So you've got $22 billion in commitments to pay for orders. First of all, have those been paid? And second of all, even if they are paid, what are the continued impacts that you're seeing on the people who are working on the factory floor? Yeah, you know, when people were super excited about, oh, pay up and we are declaring victory because there were a lot of brands in the early days who were absolutely not going to move. Brands like Gap who were in financial trouble themselves and we were able to move them. So it's not to undercut the importance of the success of the campaign. Money did get directly in the hands of workers. We know from supplier partners that it meant they were able to weather at least the spring and the summer. But as we look to the fall and Mark Anner over at the Penn State University has done some really important and telling research, firstly on just how the fashion 
brands have gone back in many ways to their bad behavior, right? So you continue to have brands who have still not paid out. Brands, as I mentioned, like an Urban Outfitters or those who are in financial crisis themselves, like a Coles and JCPenney. So for those brands, the fight continues. But there is another disturbing trend, which is beyond order cancellations, we're seeing a lot of downward pressure in price. So globally, brands are asking for upward of 12% retroactive discount across product that is being shipped. And I think if you understand the thin margins that this industry operates on, we have suppliers saying, essentially, brands are asking us to make the product for free. And because we need the continuity of business and factories to just keep running, we are in an untenable position of back against the wall to take these orders for whatever discounts. I think the other thing that has been really disturbing is, yeah, go ahead. I just want to interrupt you there. 12% almost certainly puts most factories at a loss. Exactly. I mean, th these are at best running on very small margins. Single mm -hmm. digits is fairly standard. And so to ask a brand or a factory to go 12% lower very likely puts them where they're producing at a loss, but they're doing it exactly. because they feel like they don't have another option and it keeps operations running even if they're losing money. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know, the other disturbing trend here is in the Amazon one-click prime world where everyone is suddenly used to their goods arriving very quickly, the other thing we're hearing from factories is just this pressure to produce quickly. Now, I remember it's COVID. And even though fashion brands have somehow worked with producing countries to declare that factories are essential workers and they must produce, even if they're not making PPE, you know, lead times on an average of what, 10, 12, 15 days, you know, during the holiday rush, what it means from a health and safety standpoint is a disaster because workers are reporting inability to wash hands or not wanting to wear masks because the factories are very hot. This pressure to hurry up and produce because you're already in a pressure cooker situation. And so what we're seeing is from Sri Lanka to Los Angeles, COVID outbreaks in factories. And these are factories not just producing masks, but making our ugly Christmas sweaters and our sweatpants and people who don't really have any safety nets, likely not an ability to get tested, let alone any healthcare. So you've got the safety implications of rush. You've got the price pressures, which means we are directly seeing horrific implications from a wage theft standpoint. Factories finding legal and illegal ways to not pay workers what they're owed. Average person in Ethiopia makes $24 a month. You know, in Bangladesh, it's somewhere closer to $96 a month. These are people who already live paycheck to paycheck without savings. So, you know, recent studies through the Worker Rights Consortium are showing hunger across the industry. Workers deciding whether they eat two meals or one inability to buy eggs or protein for their families. The profitability of brands, the ability to handsomely reward their shareholders, it's being done at the expense of people who can't put food at the table. There's only so much money being made, and I keep coming back to the importance of recognizing that. There's not unlimited profit. I think we, in, in the impact investing world, in this stakeholder capitalism that that people are talking about, there's this idea that somehow we're going to be able to pay out to shareholders as much money as they've been making and then pay even more to the supply chain. And we have to understand that 
there may be success stories that make that possible, but there are a lot of businesses where there's a finite amount of profit. And what you're talking Absolutely. about is what happens when that profit isn't distributed uh, in a way equitably. that allows it equitably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, the downward pressure on price when it comes to the fashion industry, and you know this as well as I, whether, fa- whether high street, whether luxury, or whether ultra fast fashion is something that was happening anyway, right? Our clothes are coming to us, continue to come to us cheaper and faster. We've been trained by the fashion industry that product is disposable. You look at things like misguided and what are they doing? They're selling dresses for eight pence, you know? If you have a $10 dress, you know there is exploitation somewhere happening. The only variable in that equation is the human effort, the human capital and ways to depress that. And that's exactly what we're seeing. I think one of the things beyond wages that's often not told is the gender-based violence that exists in the industry. So you've been in factories, you know, it's a high intense situation of let's churn out product sooner, faster, when supervisors have their back against the wall around, you know, I need to ship this very quickly. The thing that they resort to is a lot of verbal and physical abuse. And most of the people sitting on the assembly floor happen to be women. And so that's the other thing that we are picking up a lot on is just this rise in gender-based violence against women in order to get this product to us this cheap, this fast during a global pandemic. You see across factories, men in positions of power and women Mm -hmm. making up the majority of the workplace. That's exactly right. And without being promoted into positions of power. And you see the same even on the union side. How is it that this industry that's wildly profitable, mostly because of women's wear, that's sold to us and marketed by women, that's made by women, continues to mostly be run by men? I want to take a step back now I think we could talk all day about the issues in the industry, but really what you're working on is how to solve them. You've taken a number of different approaches that have led you to remake in its current form. Could you talk about a few of those from consulting to nonprofit to storytelling to now more traditional activism and why, as someone that's trying to create the most positive impact that you can, this is what you're doing? Yeah, it's a nice time at the end of the year to reflect on your life's work, isn't it? So I appreciate that question. This for me is my life's work. I really think of my own position of privilege as a Pakistani-American, first-generation immigrant to be here and to use my voice to make a difference for women who look like me, who bring our fashion to life. She is my end customer, and I have tried in many, many ways to make sure that at the end of the day, her life is better off. Coming right out of graduate school, I got a degree in public policy, you know, UC Berkeley, home of United Students Against Sweatshops, really embraced my radical roots there. And it was the early days of corporate responsibility, sustainability. And in some ways we were taught this myth, right? That the private sector business from the goodness of their heart, whether because of reputational risk, whether because we can have this winner's take all mentality of it's going to be good for workers, good for business. Business is going to save the world. And, you know, business has a role, but I would say seven years in of working within one of the largest consultancies, running the fashion vertical, working across luxury brands and high street brands and discount brands to make the business case for investing in worker lives. 
the minute we would get to the hard stuff, we would just hit a roadblock. I've written the Nike's, you know, corporate responsibility report, and I've sat across from Levi's telling them why they must invest in the health and well-being of workers and look to gap around how you can empower people within your supply chain. And honestly, seven years in, I was really disillusioned because what we weren't seeing was improvement in wages and an ability for brands to make a substantive difference when it comes to addressing their core business practices. At the end of the day, really, it just comes down to money. All of the pretty marketing around what brands are doing from a training standpoint to investing in worker well-being, I really came to the conclusion that it's window dressing. Unless we get to purchasing practices and how product is fundamentally sourced and produced, we're not going to make progress. What we need really is regulation which is why I then went on to work within the International Labor Organization, part of the UN system to say, okay, well, policy, right? If we get brands, unions, government to the table, we're going to make a difference. And, you know, there's a role for that, but even within the tripartite structure, you realize workers are often the weakest link. At the end of the day, the employers, the factories and brands are the ones with all the power and that tend to always win. And when Rana Plaza fell down, which was the biggest industrial disaster of our lifetime, for me, it got very personal because Ali Enterprise had just happened in my hometown of Karachi, which was a factory flyer. Tazreen had happened in Bangladesh. And, you know, it took days and days to pull the young women out of that wreckage. For what? For making children's place pajamas for $9.99. And I really thought... We need a uprising. We need a movement of concerned citizens that are getting policymakers to do their job to essentially hold this industry to account because making the business case or working within the bureaucracy of a multilateral setting was simply not bringing change sooner and faster. And that really is the genesis of Remake's founding story. I'll tell you, you know, we do a lot of education work on campuses. And I often do an informal survey with graduate students, undergraduate students on who do you think is going to make the most difference in the world? And across the board, people always say companies, companies are going to save the world. Or they talk about consumers, you know, consumers are going to somehow consume our way into a sustainable fashion future. But what we're not teaching young people is to really understand that a lot of the labor protections, a lot of the wins that we've had is really thanks to the labor movement. You know, Americans hate unions, but the, the progress we have made is really thanks to unions. And if we are to truly get this fashion industry under control, the silver bullet for me is regulation. And in order for us to get there, we need for us as everyday people, beyond just the federal election, beyond just voting once every four years, to be thinking about ourselves as citizens and really engage at a local state level as much. You know, I'd encourage us to think of ourselves as citizens rather than consumers in order to build the type of world that we want. That leads nicely into one of the next big changes you're working on at Remake, which has to do with a certain bill in California. Before we talk about the bill, can you just quickly set the stage for what it means to be an apparel worker in LA? 
Yeah, you know, I've always been struck by the two most consistent things I hear when I'm teaching at colleges or, you know, doing a press uh, appearance where people are like, first of all, you mean robots don't make our clothes? So, you know, there's just <laughs> no understanding that it's actually women, you know, mostly women that make our clothes. And then there's this perception. And I think especially now when nativism is so alive and kicking and we feel like we're going to harken back to, you know, our manufacturing roots here in the United States, there's a sense that somehow if it's made in the U.S., it is ethical and sustainable. And that is frankly a myth that a lot of locally produced brands have fed us, that have greenwashed and made us believe. The reason we are so focused on LA for people listening, you know, the largest manufacturing hub, as you know, uh, is in Los Angeles. We don't do a lot of production here in the United States anymore, but the little bits that we do, there are upwards of 45,000 people, part of the formal workforce in LA and a much larger underbelly of undocumented workforce. So most of our cutting stitching happens in LA. Um, she happens to be largely from Mexico or Central America. There are some workers that come from as far as Indonesia and other places. It's mostly a woman relying on that income for both supporting her family and really trying to lift herself out of a cycle of poverty. And it is a largely mixed immigration workforce, which means, and I think that's important for people to understand because as you've seen contraction in manufacturing, people often ask, well, in LA, why can't you just get unemployment benefits? And you have to remember sort of the immigration culture and how scary that is that these are a lot of people who, when we've had these COVID outbreaks, have no recourse, have no medical recourse, have no employment benefits. The other thing to know in LA is that unlike other parts of the world where we have a minimum wage, we operate in a piece rate system in LA. So that means you take home what you can make as quickly as possible. And most of that is far below minimum wage. You know, the average is coming out of LA for making our masks is three cents, four cents a mask. The average worker in LA's take home pay is $200. These are not wonderful ethical jobs, but LA has so much opportunity. You've got the creative industry there. You've got the modeling industry there. You've got up and coming designers. You've got ethical brands. And so if LA was to become the sustainable capital for fashion in the United States, we have to clean this up because from a production standpoint, it's predominantly a sweatshop market. Just to clarify there's no minimum wage for garment workers in Los Angeles. And the way that that's structured is currently you're allowed as a manufacturer to pay someone a rate per piece that they produce. And those rates are often set so low that no matter how efficient of a machine operator you are, you'll never reach a level that allows you to sustain yourself. And what you're working on is putting in place a minimum wage. You wouldn't think it would be that hard. Within the United States, so many of these service jobs, these are just not good jobs. You know, you look at what the take-home pay of an average waitress is and, you know, you have to rely on tips. And similarly, I think the only ask here for the garment industry is one legal wage, a minimum wage. This is not a radical request. This is not an outlandish request. We love to point fingers and other sourcing countries far away on sort of the sweatshops over there, but it's like, we have them right here. And the industry, which is 
predominantly Fashion Nova, one of the biggest brands sourcing out of LA, have sort of couched this bill that has really been written by garment makers, you know, spearheaded by the Garment Workers Center as a job killer bill. But we have to understand, you know, these are not good jobs and there are sustainable brands that are trying to do the right thing versus some of these predatory brands using this dehumanization of this workforce to bring us ultra fast fashion that is disposable. So we've already tried once and the clock was run on the assembly floor. The votes were there, but because of COVID, because of all of the delays, there were so many things that essentially the California Senate couldn't ram through at the end of the year. So we have a new bill number, Senate Bill 62. And for those who are interested in actively participating, can go to the Garment Workers Center site, sign the petition. In the coming weeks, we'll have a very clear way of how to call our legislatures, how to make the case to business, because we really need business to support this bill. But what's amazing about this bill is that this is directly the demand from the sewers, the makers of our clothes themselves, to say, clean this up. And, and LA has an opportunity to really shine. It just blows my mind that you could justify paying people two or three cents to make a mask during a pandemic, putting themselves at risk, and then say if they want to earn a minimum wage, that that's somehow job killing. I think we've allowed the narrative to be set by people who are profiting off of exploitation. And what that means is someone's making a couple dollars an hour while putting themselves at risk for COVID. I mean, there was a factory, Los Angeles Apparel, that had over 300 garment workers in a single factory that came down with COVID and led to several deaths. That's what we're saying is the best that we can do. And that if we don't continue that model, all production is going to go away, which is essentially the, the argument they're making. Exactly I, right. You know, you said it so succinctly and so eloquently, and it's unconscionable. You know, uh, the irony shouldn't be lost on anyone that these are people making our medical gowns and our masks and putting themselves at risk and have nothing to fall back on as the primary breadwinner within their families come down with COVID. We can do better. We should do better. We have to. So this is a somewhat new area for Remake to get involved in. You were involved in the push last year bit and look to be even more so in the next upcoming legislature. Can you tell me about the Garment Workers Center and why it's so important, but also different to have workers at the table for something like this bill? Mm -hmm. Within Remake, as you know, we really focus on three things, right? There's the transparency work, which is where pay up and getting this bill passed falls because it's all about assuring that there's accountability and transparency within the fashion industry. We do a lot of education, which is on our site, remake.world, and then a lot of leadership development. We now have 612 ambassadors. These are young women in their zip codes up and down the country, organizing, teaching their friends and family, bringing others along. And for us, we've always known that any kind of work has to be rooted in the communities you're trying to serve. You know, in the era, I think, of social media, we've seen so much slackivism. You sign something, you like something, you think then you've made progress and you feel good about yourself. But one of the things we really teach our community is our end customer are the garment workers. And if we are not in close touch, and historically that's been a global conversation, but, you know, in many ways COVID has crystallized for us 
we've got a lot of work to do right here at home that really workers should be the ones leading this conversation and we as allies are the ones that are essentially following along whether that's press engagement brand engagement other ways to amplify the message I mean, Garment Worker Center is an incredible organization. They consider workers worker partners. They're sat down with workers, you know, even before this pandemic to say, okay, like as we are to author this bill, what would it look like? Beyond this bill, they do amazing work, whether it's providing childcare for garment workers, dealing with individual cases, off-wage theft. But one of the things that I've been so struck by when it comes to the Garment Maker Center is just their ability to be this family and community for workers to lean into. And I think what we're starting to see is a lot more of that sort of women-led organization. There's Awaj in Bangladesh, there's Stand Up Lanka in Sri Lanka, and we've been facilitating just some cross-learning across these women coming into their power and really leading the way for putting a better and more just fashion industry to say, what can these labor organizers learn from one another and how can our citizen population support them? How have you been able to communicate to each of these groups or help to facilitate with each of these groups what their role is and who else do you need at the table to move this forward, right? We all have different roles in building movements. Who else would you like to have participating in what you're doing to get this bill passed, but also continue the movement? It's an excellent question. And you know, this is what movement building is all about, right? A coalition for us to understand where our skill sets are, to be clear who's at the center and then who's an ally. And I think for too long, the sustainability corporate responsibility conversation has been co-opted by brands. We've been very honest. We've put forward a seven point action agenda, payupfashion.com. That's been written by garment workers themselves to say, look, Business is very good at one thing, which is maximizing shareholder value. We shouldn't pretend that business is going to clean this up. And for any sustainability conversations, we have to first and foremost center workers, give workers center stage. I don't take um, any sustainability conference invitations if there are not workers at the table, because unless you know who you're serving, you in some ways could be doing more harm than good. So I think for people listening in, really thinking about as you take up a cause, you know, who are you serving and are those people in a leadership position? I think the ability for influencers and celebrities to lend their platform for good is so powerful. Instagram can be such a wonderful way of amplifying protest. And in some ways during COVID, the fact that Amber Valletta is sharing and being supportive of this bill and Maggie Q and these incredible celebrities in Los Angeles has been so powerful for garment makers. But you also see a lot of noise out there, influencers who are endorsing product that is allegedly sustainable that isn't. And so for people who are more in the marketing world, it's really to be sure that there is an authenticity of that message because your platform could be pushing greenwashing or it could be pushing truly an amplification of the message. 
Then there's the question of everyday customers and citizens, right? And it's about how are you mired in local issues and thinking about this? And this is where at Remake, we know you're busy. We know everyone's life has been upended. We try and really make it one easy for you, sign the right petitions, fire off the right tweet, or make it cookie cutter, but also providing you with a community to lean into. And I can't stress how important community building is within movement building because this work is lonely. The burn rate is high, but if you're having fun and if you've essentially found your tribe, that really matters. Um, who else we need really is the investor. We are currently looking at brands who have made profit but not done right by workers. I am an activist at heart, but I don't have a financial background. Like, gosh, I would love someone to take a look at these financials and help me understand this. I think there's so much education to be done within the ESG world because the S within ESG is quite weak right now and doesn't really look at these issues in a systematic way. So I'd say that is really one of missing pieces. And frankly, policymakers that are really championing these causes. I just love the fact that President-elect Joe Biden talks about union jobs. When Robert Reich was our labor secretary, we made a lot of inroads. And so we need more brave politicians who are really standing up for workers and for a union-led movement. I feel like so often each of those worlds are siloed. There are storytellers that are in one room. There are politicians that are in another. There are financial folks in another. And often, not always, but often I think there are more shared values than we think, but they don't know how to plug in. And you've done such a great job of being able to start to tap into some of those different groups. And what I'm hearing is clearly there's still more need to bring people into the fold. You've built this foundation and community that has allowed you to start to do that. Yeah, you know, I would say yes, but, um, yes, but. And, and yes, but I tell you why. Um, I cannot tell you how many social impacts, sustainability, communities, conferences, retreats, you know, I've been invited to. Sometimes I look at the food waste at these places or the money we spent on travel and entertainment. And in many ways, it just becomes a glorified way for people to feel better, you know, and I think people coming to the table is very important but it has to be for a very concrete issue, for a set agenda and a timeline. I don't believe somehow we bring all these magical players to the table to drink and talk about social impact and enjoy themselves that will somehow make progress. Within this bill, it's like, it's very concrete. Hey, policymakers, here's what we need. Hey, citizens, here's what you do. And so as we walk into 2021 and knowing the climate emergency is here and knowing that inequity around the world is growing, I really want people to feel that urgency to do more and talk less. Are you doing this to feel good? Or are you doing this to do good? And those aren't mutually exclusive, but they're also not the same thing. Correct. Correct. Because... I cannot tell you how many people your age, you know, and I can say that as sort of two generations older than you are, or coming out of college or early in your professional career, like I want to make a difference in the world. I want to do good, but it's very hard to know, well, how can I do that? Companies have been very good to sort of co-op this uh, interest to say, come within, you know, McKinsey or what have you, and you can make all kinds of good. And that's simply not true. And so I think partly it's to really look closer to home. Is there a local issue that you can really be a part of? Because the beauty that comes from community organizing, local organizing with an end goal of what am I trying to achieve and really 
practicing some of those muscles that we've lost in this sort of globally connected social media world where we somehow feel like liking and sharing something is making a difference. It, it isn't. Early on in Remake, you had funding from brands. You no longer have that. I think that's a really important thing to highlight when you look at how many of the sustainable fashion events, conferences, et cetera, are being funded by brands. I don't know how much you can share about your experience of the challenge there and why it's so important to understand who's funding the work that you're doing. It's such an important question. You know that a lot of climate denying research is funded by the oil and gas industry. And much like that, we don't seem to look in a critical way when it comes to the state of the industry reports, like the big one that McKinsey just published. You think about the research coming out of the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, and it's been underwritten by Caring and H&M. It's to say, well, if the brands are controlling the research, if they're deciding what the sustainability goals are, when they can't reach the goalposts, like H&M didn't reach their living wage commitment, so then they just change the commitment, then you're just not going to make progress. And I think the same goes for sustainable fashion conferences and the glitzy events that you and I both found ourselves at, that it's essentially the industry controlling the conversation. There are never a lot of people of color there who are mostly the makers of our clothes. So there is sort of a colonial racial dimension to this as well. But, you know, when it comes to money, I think this is where it's so hard, this work, because as social impact, as impact investing was taking off, a lot of this activism and advocacy work started to fall out of favor. There are a number of foundations that told us that activism and advocacy is not what we do. We now have a social impact fund because it is sort of the more bright, shiny object, right? Of somehow I'm going to invest in a sustainable business that's also going to have all this amazing impact. And it's not to say there isn't a place for that, but the truth is that a lot of that world remains largely deregulated. What is social impact? Who decides that? And again, it's putting all the onus on the private sector to fix all these problems that they've caused to begin with. Or put another way, you're asking people to police themselves. Right, right. You've said it so much better than my long-winded explanation. (laughs) And when it comes to early days of Remake, because I had worked on the inside of the industry, I obviously called in some favors when my first time running a nonprofit, which was to say, well, as long as the money is coming from corporate foundations, I believe stupidly in that way that, you know, there's a wall and that we are safe in our advocacy and transparency focus because the money is coming from the foundation and not the brand. But the more hard hitting our documentary work got, the closer to the truth our campaigning got, the more our community started to grow, a lot of the foundations tried to micromanage what the narrative is that we should tell. A lot of corporate foundations want to talk about sustainable materials and circularity, but they don't want to talk about how much output they're putting out in the world. A lot of them want to talk about worker well-being and this investment in the literacy of this workforce, but they don't want to talk about wages. And so our board made the very difficult decision end of last year, right before COVID hit, to say we should just take no money from fashion brands whatsoever. And in many ways, that has allowed us to be more free 
when it comes to our message to be more authentic. So people coming to our community know that no money from the fashion brands has exchanged hands in any ways. So our sustainable brand directory has no affiliate marketing. Our transparency campaigns have no brand input. And I think that's really important for people who are thinking about nonprofits and impact is where's your money coming from? And will that muzzle or amplify your mission? But for anyone who's thinking about this from a funder standpoint, you know, I think there's a lot of donor education to do as well on the importance of activism and advocacy and funding this kind of work, because the truth is there isn't a lot of money out there for this type of slogging work. And how are you to take on a $2.4 trillion industry when you're trying to also pay your staff and keep lights on? It's, it's hard. As someone that's very active now in the impact investing world, it's so important to understand the need for a wider range of solutions. I think you see a lot of foundations and socially conscious investors that have pulled back from grants and pulled back from nonprofits and said, you can solve problems better by doing it profitably. Mm-hmm. And your focus should not be on making profits. That's no, there's I not mean- a for-profit model for the work that you're doing. And investors have tried to tell me that. They're like, well, why don't you take affiliate marketing and build an app where people can discover sustainable product? I'm like, because that's not going to leave a generation of women better off from a health and safety and wages standpoint. I'm not in this work for the glamour of it or the money of it. I'm here to assure that workers are paid better and that there's more equity and justice in the fashion industry. And if you look at any of the most intractable issues of our lifetime, there is no profit to be made from most of this if we're actually to make systemic change. Aisha, thank you so much. This is wonderful. I so admire your work. and I know that I'm not alone in that. Christian, thank you so much for you and your sister for having these important, difficult conversations. Thank you.